thank you for doing this. You're very welcome. It's indeed my pleasure, Zach. How's your day going? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, once we have a few little startup uh, issues, I think it's probably good as, as good as it can be at this point in my life. <laughs> Thank you for asking. My pleasure. And yours, Zach, how are you doing? Oh, you know what? It's been a long January. We're living, we're breathing, you know, we're moving, yes. we're healthy. Yeah. You know, every day that I wake up and I can move and whatever, it's like dressing for the party. And people say, well, why do you dress up? Because you know what? Every day is an experiment or an experience. I'm not sure which it is, just depending on what unfolds that day. But, you know, it's dressing for the party and it's called the party called life. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wrote a book about, Zach, because, you know, we all have um, things that we have to go through and get through them. And we learn something. And so that makes it worth its time. Doc, have you been someone that's always been willing to get dressed, go out and be unique, be you? Well, you know what, uh, Zach, I come from the farm of Saskatchewan, and I really have to tell you, kind of from Timbuktu land, where nothing really grows but rattlesnakes and desert um, flowers. And uh, so uh, when you're uh, kind of the second of five children with no money, you have to invent ways of doing things. So uh, it's kind of an interesting thing because my uh, father was a farmer, and it was hard to make a living, and my mother was a nurse. And uh, she, when she had all these kids, uh, decided to give up nursing. But, you know, um, she became this entrepreneur woman where she uh, was kind of like a nurse practitioner in the neighborhood. People would come in and out getting in some shots and whatever. So our house was kind of like do drop in and mom would fix you up. So um, then she uh, decided that she should take up a seamstress course and uh, she would sew. So she, her brother was... Um, uh, an endocrinologist, and he was in London, uh, England, doing a road scholar. And so he would have all these wonderful suits that he would bring home. And mom would take them apart, deconstruct them, and make something for us. So um, being on the farm and having no money, all I ever wanted in raising this calf that we got that we could sell and uh, have make our money was to um, have a, some kind of a coat that was on the outside catalog cover of the Sears catalog, right? So uh, anyway, all these things, I would dream of this envision of how I would take the clothing the mother made that I didn't like because it was all too plain for me. I just wanted something real and bought. And so I would then take all these different things and put it together. You know, I take flowers out of the garden and press them and make something. I would make paper, you know, collars and different things like that. And my dad uh, used to trap for the Hudson Bay as well. So you'd have these pelts that I would take pieces of and uh, make my own fur collar and all these things. And so uh, it kind of was in my blood. Uh, my mother was an amazing artist as well. And I have one daughter that is an artist. So we've got that kind of in our family. But I really can't draw anything. So I had to find different ways. So because I'm totally um, bad at making anything and doing anything, I just decided that for all the artists that exist in the world today, and we just had Stacy, who I think you know, in here, and uh, they have this wonderful um, expression of artwork. So the best that I can do is to wear it at exactly as they design it, because I know that when you take away um, somebody's artistic idea and you water it down so it appeals to the masses in a generic form, you destroy everything. So I just think, you know, 
Why not? And I'm besides, I'm in the visual persona. So I figure, well, after you get that, then you'll just see this, this, whatever it is, get up this accumulation of whatever. And, uh, you know, especially after COVID, all things ended of where we really couldn't go out or people just can stay at home now with a hybrid form of uh, working. My artist friends that are in clothing say, well, nobody's wearing anything anymore. Well, I think that you should dress every day up. And, you know, frankly, I think that when people dress up, they feel better too. Because you're taking some pride in who you are. And it doesn't have to be like everybody else. It can be a creation of whatever you want. So that's what I think. I have no idea. Today I'm representing my special charity, which is not in my, my city. city. Just because I think when you get older, it's really important that you give back. And that comes from my mother who believed that if you can help somebody because you can, you must. And that's what she did all her life. What was growing up like? You know, you said mom was a nurse, dad was a farmer. What were you guys growing out there? What was it like with your siblings? You know, were you the one that would have, I guess, stood out amongst your classmates? Well, you know what, Zag? Uh, my story would be somewhat uh, checkered. Uh, <laughs> I would call it, uh, well, an experience for my mother or <laughs> uh, an experiment. You see, my sister was the oldest, and then there was me, and then I had three brothers. Now, in those days, every man wanted a namesake. So we got my sister, and of course, that was great. But in those days, you couldn't tell what the next entity would be. There was no, like, determining what species you were about to have. And uh, so anyway, of course, my father uh, was sure that I was going to be a boy to carry on the Manya name. And, of course, then I popped out, and it was everything but not exactly what he expected. I'm sure there was some degree of disappointment, but uh, my sister, even to this day, is goody-two-shoes, and I was always compared to her, but I never really ranked. And then, after me, my mother had three boys. So, you can imagine that I roamed between a land of I don't even know what. So, of course, I didn't get much attention, so I had to create my own kind of persona, my own idea of things. And I realized then if you uh, really worked hard and studied and whatever else, because um, uh, the only thing I could do is kind of use my head, uh, then I could kind of do whatever I wanted to do. So, you know, uh, I ran away from school when I was in grade eight, yeah. um, just because, you know, this was too boring for me. And besides, like, there was nothing really, mm-hmm. uh, I figured it out. And so then I may as well just have my friends who didn't do quite as well and I'd help them out. And then we'd just like do bad things like, you know, put glue on the teacher's desk, let her <laughs> sit on it and see what exactly. happened. And then, you know, they would take They would, you know, get the strap in the morning. In those days it was like, well, uh, you got the strap and they would all be lined up there. And I'd feel really bad about that. So, I would have to take the heat and because I had marks that were kind of half decent, they didn't really know what to do with me. So my mother would call in the uh, guidance counselor then and, uh, you know, I just screw up all the data just because it was fun to do it and just throw a pen answer that question. And uh, so it was really pretty frustrating. And so my mother, uh, more toward the end of her life, said, you know what, you gave me all the gray hair I have. And I said, yes, I know. So even to this day, we're much older now. My sister 
you know, has all these stories and you would think they're actually from a comic book, but no, they were actually real. So, uh, you know, I just have to tell you the fashion thing in the 1970s, there was Twiggy and she was this androgynous look of a very thin person, but I thought she was like pretty cool. So I cut my hair off and I wore uh, uh, things that were just like Twiggy, right? And um, anyway, <laughs> the teachers were all worried about something was wrong with me. But no, I was just like seeing what kind of a, what, what effect I could have, right? So how I got into optometry, I really have no idea. I think they made a mistake and they're probably still regretting it or wondering what <laughs> I happened. don't think so, Doc. Because, <laughs> no, well, yeah, because, uh, you know, in those days, you only took three from Saskatchewan. And, uh, you know, Ruth uh, was one of the rare females with me in, in our class. And, uh, you know, and the other uh, the other guy was uh, Kent, who was just a wonderful guy whose father, whose brother was a physician. So they all had the genetics and mm -hmm. whose father was a, an optometrist. I was like, uh, not much of anything. So uh, anyway, but it was kind of fun. Uh, and so I, I don't know. So here I am 40 some years later, still loving what I do. What town are you from, Doc? Well, it's a town, uh, yeah, well, it's called Kildare, Saskatchewan, but I actually really didn't live in Kildare. We lived seven miles west of Kildare on a farm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that brings another story. So I'm telling you about this checkered past because it really is. You know, I was so bad at sports. It was like I, I learned how bad it is to be not wanted. And so... Uh, you know, uh, the teachers would, everybody would groan when we were playing baseball. Oh, man, we had to take her. So I had to find another way because I was really bad at sports and I was really bad at athletics and I was really bad at all that stuff and I knew it and I knew that no one wanted me. And when you're, you know, an eight-year-old or seven-year-old child and you see that you're left sitting out mm -hmm. because nobody wants you, it really affects your psyche. Of course. And um, so... Uh, anyway, I had to figure out another way to, to, to use my special skill that I didn't have, uh, but I had to come up with a way that they could really want me. So anyway, I decided that I had a loud voice and I was out there. So they then called me Foghorn. And uh, so when we had to cheer because they won, they would go, okay, Foghorn, go for it. So then I became a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then you had to have the luck, you know what I mean? Not that I had anything that was sexy. It wasn't, let me assure you. But at least I had, you know, throwing feathers around and various different things. So um, anyway, you have to create your own little niche, right? Which is kind of crazy. Looking back at life, mom was a... Uh... A role model in many ways to you, it seems. Unfortunately, you know, in, in my day, there were very hardly, there were hardly any women uh, role models as such because women, you know, their job was really to raise the children and to, you know, you became a nurse or something like that. But I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, I was going to do something different. But I have to say of all the role models, as I think back over many decades now, the role model probably in my life was my mother. And uh, even though we didn't get along half the time and I gave her a lot of grief and all her gray hair, uh, I just have to say that my mother was one of these people against great amounts of adversity. She never gave up. So we had these five children. My father could hardly eke out a living farming. My mother and father discussed it. And I remember listening to it very sensitively, you know, wondering how they were going to pay the bills. And it really bothered me. And it's still to this day, 
is probably why I, I still work as hard as I do and still do things. But I remember what it was like to be poor and I just wanted some of the things that the other kids had and I knew that we couldn't afford it and that's why I had to develop my own way of dressing my doll Darla so that she looked like some of the dolls that you'd buy in the store. But my mother um, decided that her and dad decided that she would go back to school and finish. She was a nurse, but she had to upgrade because of, um, you know, it had been some time since she had been doing nursing. So my mother upgraded her nursing and uh, that woman would stay, um, you know, in town because it was too expensive to drive back and forth. And we had only one vehicle. And dad, I have to say, was also pretty inspirational and in that I think he was the first stay-at-home man that I ever knew. Uh, and you know, for a man in those days, the pride and the, what can I say, of a man staying at home, raising the children, while the wife went out to work and came back home maybe once a month and then cooked and cleaned and did all these preserves and whatever else, was pretty amazing. But in retrospect, it was my sister and I that had to take care of, I always tell me, my youngest brother who was a baby. Yes, you you are responsible uh, <laughs> for taking care of us in later life because we took care of you and wiped your butt, showed you how to go to the bathroom and all the other things, right? So I have to say that my mom, uh, and then, you know, um, things got better as time and my youngest brother was uh, still at home. The rest of us had left. And... Um, my dad, only at the age of 59, was out skidooing with my brother while my mom was in a hospital in Edmonton where my other, another brother had almost lost his arm. She was waiting for the surgery to be done. It was in the middle of February, blistering cold, and my father let my brother, who was 15, stay at home with him, and they were going out skidooing. And they were doing a race out in the pasture and dad wasn't coming tom went back to look for him and he had had a massive heart attack and died and was out in the field we had to tell my mother uh this and she was in edmonton so it was really awful at that moment my mother um you know had to not only run the farm but had to nurse uh had to still raise my brother tom and among all of that adversity she was able to do it pretty outstanding really what age was your mom when she passed away uh my, well my dad was 59 so my mother was uh, a couple of years younger so probably about 56 54 somewhere around there yeah so but it, you know it was all of a sudden because this was totally unexpected because my father was no one could believe it because of all of his brothers of which there were 10 in the family he was in amazing condition you know had rippling abs and so forth so this was totally unexpected and what an upheaval in a family. And I realized then and there that, you know, grit, I think, perseverance among the most difficult of circumstances um, can happen if you believe that it can. And I think today when I see people just giving up so easily because of dire circumstances, and we all have dire circumstances, mm -hmm. I believe that we with a little with just a little bit of support and to talk to people we can get there but you know what i did learn throughout all of my history is this that you know the most important thing is as i said with my mother if you can make a difference because you can you must
So my heart lies with those children. So I have many kids that I see. I love kids. I mean, I think I'm just a big kid, really. And I have all the, and I've got fifth generation that I see in the family. Because, you know, I graduated from optometry in 1978. Now I've got like three practices. And I love what I do. And I don't think I'll ever retire. I think I'll be like the queen. One day I'll say to, to everyone, well, you know what? I don't think I'm coming into work today. And then I'm done. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, my only hope for longevity is no one could stand me on another world. So there you go. So uh, here we are. But I really believe that, you know, when you see a child, that is the moment where you can make a difference. And so we have um, a charity that we named after my, my, my daughter and also my mother, Anna, uh, which we take kids off the street. And, uh, you know, and I say this to anybody that's viewing, if you have children that are in desperate need, rather than having to wait for all the organization through government, which takes forever, we need something now, not a long convoluted process. Please bring them in, because if we can make a difference in a child's life when it matters, then it's important to do so. And, you know, you do a lot of these things, you're never really sure if it makes a difference or not, but every now and again, you get a story this says it's worth it. I remember one time and I tell this story because it really, it really impacted me. And I have a number of stories over the years, but this particular one, we have this little girl that's, that's pregnant. She's 15 years of age. She's with her little boyfriend and she's about ready to have this baby. She has a huge prescription and no glass that she can't see. A street worker brings her in. We examine her eyes and whatever else. And, um, Anyway, her she she goes to the hospital, has the baby, and the boyfriend comes and picks up her glasses. Never heard anything more from her. Wasn't sure if it made a difference or not. So this is like ten year, ten years or so ago. But probably, you know, you never really know. And every now and again, you think about this. So amazingly, about maybe less than a year or so ago, this girl comes in. She is a plumber. And she says, you don't know who I am, do you? And I said, well, you know what? I don't know. Maybe you can refresh your mind. She told me her story. And she said, I remember that. And I just wanted to come back and tell you that because I could see, I could do something, and I could finish my career. And I have my little girl. She brought a little girl that she had in. And I tell you, if I had won millions of dollars or I had been anything, it wouldn't have mattered as much as her coming back and telling me that story. Then you think, you know what? I just want to know at the end of my life that I made, I was, it was worthwhile being here for a difference, even if it's just one person. Because it doesn't matter what you accumulate. It doesn't matter if there wasn't a purpose that makes a difference for someone. If your parents were around, what would they think of their daughter today? Well, I think that, you know, all of us have insecurities. And even at the age that I am, you know, you would think that I have no insecurities. But yes, I'm a bag of insecurities. Uh, you know, I never really know what position I'm in and where and, and so on. But I always make myself, I feel that we'll, we're all a bag of all those things that happen to us and so on. So, I, I mean, if my if my parents were around, um, you know, I, I just have to tell you this. Um, when I was younger... I really felt that I was useless and I felt that I didn't fit in anywhere because my sister was older than me and she had her friends. I was kind of like, I felt like a disappointment to my parents. 
And then I had my three brothers. So I kind of roamed around doing my own thing, getting into trouble, as I told you, and so on. I really felt that I really didn't have a purpose and that, uh, you know, I wasn't worthwhile. I was I, I was no good, and I really didn't know what I was going to do, and that, that I had no perspective, even at a very young age. And so I remember my father taking me aside, and I had freckles, and I was fat. And if you look up um, um, a chocolate bar called Fat Emma, uh, the kids you uh, the kids used to call me Fat Emma, and it's this cute little girl that has these freckles, and she's got pigtails, and she's uh, and the chocolate bar uh, is um, a marshmallow with outside of a coating of chocolate. So they used to call me Fat Emma, and also, uh, and then I got foghorn, as I told you. So like whatever. But uh, anyway, uh, I, there was really a point in my life where I felt that, you know, what's my point? What it, what is it being here? And then my father took me aside and he said, you know, I want to tell you something. You're my little Prunella Primrose. Hmm. He said, you can do anything you want to do. Just do it. But whatever you do, make sure that there are two things that are important, that it's ethical and that it makes the benefit for someone else. And then it's all okay. And I remember when I was leaving for university, um, you know, we had no money. So actually, uh, I had to take the bus from the small town to Regina, and my uncle paid for my flight to uh, Waterloo, Ontario, which is the only English-speaking uh, uh, university for optometry still today. And uh, uh, my dad uh, said to me, "Okay, and this is a this is the time when drugs were just as bad as they are now, except that you didn't die. In those cases, you just scrambled your brain forever. Those were things like." LSD and so on. So you saw things you didn't see and you saw them again and again, whatever. So the parting words from my dad were, okay, two things. Don't get pregnant and don't take drugs. Dad, I gotcha. And I knew it didn't mean that I could come back if things didn't work out. And I was bound determined that it was going to work out. So with absolutely nothing, no idea of how I got in, knowing how competitive it was, all I had were marks and I had a few scholarships because I worked so hard at it that um, I realized the key to success really, if there is any, is education, number one, because no one can take it away from you and it's not subject to inflation or anything else. And so when I say that education, I don't mean necessarily book education. I mean, every experience that we have in our life that we think is bad, when you have the stamina to get through it, then you can use that as education for the next stepping stone, if not for yourself, for someone else to guide them through it. So I, I really believe in education, whether it's books or otherwise. So um, if my parents, in answer to your question, Zach, were here today, I think they would say, um, this. Okay, what's next? <laughs> what other disturbance are you going to make? And I think anybody around me goes, including my husband of uh, something like 38 years, um, what's next? He's an engineer and I'm not. So you can see it's a yin and yang. Uh, and he said, you create these messes that I have to fix up. I said, yeah, I know, but you can do it. <laughs> and, you know, like uh, it's kind of like leaving a trail. You know, uh, it's kind of like burning rubber, leaving streaks and exiting. You know, that's kind of my spell. 
so I think they probably, yeah, and you know, even at my mother's uh, funeral, you know, my my sister said, who's bossy, and still bossy, she says, okay, well, you, my mother wanted me to write her eulogy, so I did, and, um, and then she was timing me, she said, okay, you guys send it to me for proof and whatever else, and I said to my brothers, no, I'm not doing it, and so, of course, you know, I went on, on about these things, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, well, they would probably say, hmm, we never know what the next story is going to be with me. The unexpected. <laughs> I love more it. Like it. Well, you know what? I got to congratulate you as well. You got your master's in human resources. Yes, I just finished that. Now, you know, people say to me, like, why at my age am I doing this? Well, I mean, why not? And, you know, when I had kids and had to run practices and do all these things, not that I'm still not doing that, just in the grandparent role now, but still, um, you know, the the thing is, I want to be up to date. I want to be current. And so if I, and again, is to help people because, you know, we live in a world of where, yeah, we, we think about interest rates today. Well, you know, I'm thinking about interest rates when I was young. Interest rates were double digit and increasing. Like they were 24%. So like I'm thinking, okay, we got 6%, like whatever. <laughs> I don't think I should worry about that too much. And somehow we survived. You know, um, and and so I, I have that experience. But if I'm up to date and I have experience, then I'm still in the market. Because you know what happens is that, I don't know what with, with the country that we live in here, is that after your certain age, like 55 or so, you're considered like burnt out material, like go away. They have no credibility. Whereas in other countries, and even among our indigenous population, the elders are looked with um, uh, with dignity and wisdom. with pride and with experience. Wisdom, exactly. Here with us, okay, you're 55. Get out of here. You've got nothing to offer. Good luck in finding a job. Wait a minute. What can I say? So anyway, I always laugh and say the reason I took this master's in human resource is because I wanted to know what was out there in the working field. Why is it that we don't have the stamina that we had before? What happened? And particularly after COVID, what concerns me more than anything, dealing eyeball to eyeball, soul to soul with many, many people of all walks of life, mm -hmm. is the mental health of people. We have indeed a problem. And I really believe that if everybody would take one of us old folks and have a chat with us, we are not your competitors. So when they say, okay, boomer, get out of our life. No, no, we're not competing with you. But I would say that every entrepreneur in your age group starting out should grab one of us old mentors out there. Because even though things have changed, they really haven't. Because people are still people. So I would believe, so if I were to give somebody starting a business or whatever, it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter what they're in, to grab a mentor, it doesn't have to be in the same business, but an old person like myself that says, you know what, like chill out on this. It's not that bad. Have you thought about doing something like this? And man, the experience that you could get. We've already walked the talk and we have nobody to share it with. Why do you want to walk the same thing yeah. and experience the same tragedies when we can tell you what's going to happen or give you an idea so you can be aware of it and not go down the trail we did and get stuck in the mud and then have to get pulled out? Don, you've been a leader so, well, for many years. In 1999, you were... I think the first optometrist in Canada to create a website as well. I've always believed that you've got to keep ahead of the trend. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really important. And when everybody is on board, then you're already behind because it's already too universal. So the thing is, is that uh, we decide that a website, and my husband's an engineer, so he's in developing things. So, you know, I can't say that it's all mine. It's not. But I really believe that there are faster and better ways to do things. People fear things. They fear change. For me, if I figured it out, it's time to move on to something new and a change. So now I, I look at the website, you know, uh, the same as I look at now AI today. So I'm finished my human resource thing, but I'm working on how can I use AI in my practice? Mm -hmm. And so my next course, I'm thinking about, I just have to find the time because I got to clean all the junk out of my basement. Or I might just leave that for my children as their inheritance. I haven't figured it out yet, me, either way. But I'm thinking that, you know, we need to embrace AI. It's not going to go away. I didn't say it was all positive, just like the internet. It's not all positive. Just like social media isn't all positive. But there are many ways it can be used that are. And there's no point in saying it's not happening and living under a rock because it's happening. Absolutely. And we need to embrace it. And we need to find out ways to do things. It's like digital imaging when it had come out. It's like what we're doing today, Zach. Wouldn't be possible a few years ago. But you've got to be able to embrace the moment. And you see, because I've been around for so long, that's why I took the master's, you know, because I've been around for so long, I actually, you know, the, the, the kids in my in my class would say, how do you know this? Well, I'm older than the prof anyway. Uh, well, well uh, the only reason I know it is not because I'm smart. It's because I've lived it. You've experienced it. Yeah. So I, I that's what I'm saying. So I, I think you always got to keep current and you always have to think forward. Because if you're, you know, let's just face it, the world is never going to be the same. Post-COVID is different than pre-COVID. I, if I had any wish for this world, I don't know that I would worry about as much of global warming as I would be about peace in the world. And, you know, I, in my day, we were looking for peace in the world. You know, we had John Lennon saying, you know, and all the different people saying, well, what happened? We don't have peace in the world. And so what we have to do is understand that every single person has different ideas. They come from different backgrounds and so on. Everybody together, like every generation, can work together. And it's amazing what we could accomplish. So why don't we? So I decided that, you know, I'll take this master just so I can hang out with your age group. See what, what's, what's happening there. And actually, I really, really enjoy it. So the point is, when I don't know how to figure something out, something technical, like, you know, I don't want to read all the information about it and take a course. No, no, I just call one of my, my students at the front desk. Hey, can you help me out with this? And then, of course, the exciting part is when I figured it out and I know something they don't know. It's even more exciting. <laughs> I love it. You know, <laughs> if there's someone out there that's fearful of AI, that's not willing to learn, not open to it all. What could you tell them? Well, I'll tell you what, I just got off of uh, a meeting with, uh, like I've got, uh, I'm in two different provinces as far as the license go in Saskatchewan. So we were having an examining board uh, meeting, you know, for various things. And uh, our association, you know, um, I think all professional associations are afraid of AI. I know that in my last semester of the classes I, were I was taking, we had two students, um, you know, um, I don't know if I would say reprimanded, I guess would be the word for, uh, you know, there's plagiarism as far as I take your quote and I don't, I don't reference it. Okay. That's what most universities are checking right now. 
But now we have another concern for AI. And in those cases, we had to write some different essays and theses and different things like that. And some of those things were totally plagiarized and, you know, they were written by AI. So I decided actually to check that out myself and see. So I wrote this final paper and I wrote it like out of my brain, which is pretty scrambled, but I wrote it. And then I got the AI app that uh, one of my, uh, my son-in-law works at the university and, uh, you know, he's a prof and he hates teaching students because, but he has to do it. And okay, fair enough. And uh, so anyway, he said, now... Uh, they have an AI uh, app that you can use to see whether or not it's been totally AI or whether it's been human. So anyway, I decided that I would um, take my stuff that I'd already done that I did myself, and then I put that through AI, and I say, okay, chat GPT, and check this all out and correct it and whatever else. So I did that. Then I went to the the AI app that can check for plagiarism, if you will, or copying, and sure enough, Mine was 100% human, the original one I'd written. And the other one done by ChatGPT was 100% uh, AI. So uh, I'm killing myself laughing because is there a difference? So I look at it, yes. AI is pretty easy to pick up because it's so grammatically correct. And, you know, it wouldn't be the intuitions that I'm saying to you. I, I can say something to you. Well, you get my picture, man. Uh, but AI would not see it as that. They would look at pictures that wouldn't even fit in there. So You're true. understanding uh, this and that, right? So it's like too grammatically correct for how a human mm -hmm. yeah. really talks. So anyway, I just think AI is like fantastic if used in the right way. I think social media is fantastic if used in the right way. But that's it with everything, though. And I want to talk about not in my city. Not in my city. Okay. Well, you know, I have a heart for children. Yes. And I'm going to tell you that having lived, uh, you know, a, a life of where I didn't have a lot of means, I could have easily straighted my life to various every, different things. But because it was my father who believed that I had the capability to do what I could do, anything I wanted to do, he really believed in me. It was shattering when he died. If I didn't have him to tell me that, I don't know where I would have ended up, to tell you the truth. So many children you know, have been like me. Uh, they've not, not had a direction. They haven't had anyone to guide them for a variety of circumstances. But the saddest of my life is when people take advantage of children. And so when we look at trafficking, we look at children of all walks of life. I, in my practice in Regina, did the Paul Dojek Center for many, many years, which is a juvenile center for children. I went to the jail, a provincial correctional center, which was a male jail for something like 20 years as an optometrist to see these people. I realized that if you can't see, you cannot learn. But what I did find out is that sadly, many people have been led into the wrong direction and been used by people of all walks of life. And I do mean all walks of life. So when Paul Brandt and my friend said, you know, um, and I, this is this, and this is that, and all these different things. We are going to develop this, and I, and I know Paul, and, uh, you know, a number of his people. I said, well, consider me on it. And I'm going to tell you that if we can change a life of a child and stop the trafficking, even one child. And I don't care if you've been trafficked. I don't really care. I don't care what. I'm always interested in the life story that happened to people because it's very sad. 
And I have to say that, you know, what really brought this to my attention was many years ago, probably 30 years ago, and I practiced for about 40 some years, is when a mother had three daughters and she, um, and you know, socially they weren't very far ahead, but anyway, she brings these three daughters in for eye examinations and they cannot see. Well then, what happens is that I get a call from social services. The mother is with some creep. Uh, and this guy is abusing these three daughters. And the only person that this little girl would talk to was myself. And social services wanted to interview me to see what they could do. I realized then and there how tragic and how awful it is. And so I really believe that if we can take a stand and it's a large business across the world, one of the largest. If we can save only one child, we save a life. And even if you've been trafficked, still, there are people there that are about to say it. It's on my car, I have this on my car. And I've got to tell you, just last week, I was at the Canadian Tire parking lot getting some shelving to try to clean up my basement I should be doing. And uh, this young man about your age or so comes up to me and says, not in my city. I said, well, how did you know? He says, because my dad and I are out there advocating. And so, you know, if we can have this yellow rose of freedom, that's what it's all about. And I'd like to see this universal across the globe. And in fact, I was actually at an airport in Sweden last year. And this guy comes up to me and says, not in my city because I have it on my suitcase as well. So I'll tell you, I want to see it all across. And when I talked to Paul and Paul, and I had to, and he was in the office the other day and we had a little discussion about where we're going in every single airport, everywhere. I really believe that there's hope and I believe in hope. And so I know that we'll never really completely combat it, but we have to take a stand. Doc, if there's something you could say to someone that's out there struggling, needing some sort of encouragement, I know you do it on a daily for all of us, so thank you for that. But what would you give them? First of all, I would say never give up. Yeah. You know, life for me has, is always a challenge. And, you know, people might say, well, you're lucky here. There. There's no luck involved in it. It's about getting over one hurdle to the next hurdle to the next hurdle. Never, never giving up. You don't need a lot of friends. You don't need a lot of this, but you need people that support you. And then sometimes the people that you get support come in your life if you allow them to. And often it's not even family because family become too biased. They tell you, do this, Zach, do this, do this, because they want the best for you. But that's not what you want. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's a serendipitous event. Just like, you know, Stacy, you know, I, the, the, the artist, you know, I, um, I met her at, um, at Monique's birthday party. And uh, then I saw this beautiful work and I see in her mind this beautiful work. And our, our logo for the office is a butterfly because everybody is a cocoon. And then when you can see you blossom into this beautiful butterfly that allowed you to see so many wonderful things in the world. And so when I see these pictures of her with her butterfly, I mean, my friends are pulling me away. Come on, we got this picture. But I'm looking at this and it just like burnt my brain. And so I had to buy her some pictures, and I just had her in today because I've got this area that I want 
that I have done with one of her artworks so that we can help her sell her stuff and whatever else. You see, we all have to go through, you, you, you know, my thing is hope is the most important thing that you've got. I don't care where you come from, what you've been through. Hope is it. Hope is it for all of us. And I think for the world as well. Every day I actually pray in the morning and, the after, and at the end of the day, hope that we find peace in the world. Hope for happiness, whatever it may be. It's got nothing to do with money. It's got everything to do with making a difference. Thank you so much, Doc. I appreciate your time today. You're welcome, Zach. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care.